His mercy and His kindness know no end. Amen? Amen. Uh, If you would turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. This morning we're going to examine the church in Philadelphia in verses 7 through 13. Uh, First we will uh, pray, then we'll read the scripture together. And then we'll examine the passage verse by verse, uh, making observation and applications along the way. So for your convenience, I have listed the scripture references there. Like I said earlier, I will not use all of them, but I will be using a lot of them. So um, this will help you uh, follow along this morning. It also uh, may be helpful if uh, afterwards something in the Word resonates with you this morning. You can go back and, and go through those um, passages uh, and make connections later. Uh, so first, let us uh, pray together. Well, Father in heaven, you are holy and you are the only true God. You know everything about us and you take an intimate interest in our lives because of your love for us that is in Christ Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would preserve us in faith in these troubled days. Would you hold on to us in our weaknesses? Lord, we wait upon you in these days, trusting that you have named us in Christ and that you will bring to us the reward of our faith, a complete and eternal fellowship with you. And we say in these days, come, Lord Jesus, come. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, As you are able, would you stand as we Read the holy, inspired, inerrant word of God from Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds, Behold, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I'll write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out from heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I hope that you will be as encouraged from this passage this morning as I have been all week. This is uh, perhaps the most encouraging uh, message from the book of Revelation uh, so far, uh, and it may be one of the the most encouraging uh, passages to us as a church. As we think about um, church growth strategies that are in the American landscape of Christianity, what they do is they promote 
innovation is the key to success. Our churches today uh, promote this idea that to be successful, you must be innovative. And the thought there is that the culture that we live in dictates that we must use newer methods because uh, we, we have to see the church grow. So we must use these newer sort of inventive, creative methods. Innovation in American Christendom has come, though, at the expense of obedience. See, people want to do church their own way. This is appealing to the worldly uh, mindset. It's appealing to their heart and to their mind. And so what we see here today in this passage is that the uh, church in Philadelphia was small and it was struggling and it was commended for doing church God's way. The church that simply reads the scriptures and by grace follows the instructions contained in them is the church that is found to be faithful when the master, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns. See, this is not the kind of church that makes people happy. It is not the kind of church that has the happening vibe. It is not the hip church with the the hip, uh, good-looking pastor standing up preaching the word, right? Who has the right hairstyle and the right clothes and the right thing, right? This is, this is not that kind of church. This is not the kind of church that, that the American landscape promotes as, as the way to do it, right? We've got to be innovative and we've got to be, uh, uh, culturally, uh, relevant in look and appearance and all of these things, right? We have to be creative. No, this is not that church. This is not the church that the innovative church around us wants to cooperate with, right? This is not that church. They don't want to partner with that kind of church because the faithful church emphasizes obedience. It, 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 uh, it, 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 it emphasizes obedience over innovation. And because innovation is in the place of obedience, it is an attitude of this church. The attitude of this church um, that we're looking at this morning is, is an attitude of obedience. And disobedience to the scriptures and to doctrine and to innovation usually leads to the beginning of every kind of false practice and every kind of false teaching. This idea of innovation is just a little bit askew of what's right. It's just a little bit. And then that little bit carries on, right? And it's the beginning of what becomes false. And then in the end, right, you didn't, that, that church never intended to be false. They never intended, uh, to do that, but they, they started with innovation and then they sacrificed a little here, sacrificed a little there, compromised a little there. And pretty soon they're down the road and they're not even recognizable as a faithful church because they've, they've discounted obedience as the way to go. This is not this kind of church. This kind of church is faithful. Uh, and what we will see in our passage today is that faithfulness acts as a preservative in times of trouble. It is a preservative. It's like the, the salty has not lost its saltiness. This is, this is a church that is preserved in its saltiness, right? It's a church for which Christ, in this passage we see, has no condemnation for this church at Philadelphia. He has nothing bad to say about them. He jumps right in with, I know your deeds. And he says nothing negative about their deeds. 
Well, to give us some context of what's going on here at Philadelphia, a, a guy named Attalus II, he founded Philadelphia, and Attalus famously named the buildings in the region after his brother Eumenes. Attalus was given the title then, Philadelphus, which translates roughly to this idea of brother lover. The city was then called the city of brotherly love, or Philadelphia. Philadelphia was meant to be a base at that time for spreading the Greek culture and promoting a Hellenistic way of life. One of the interesting traditions that will come into play this morning as we think about um, what Jesus says to this church, one of their interesting traditions uh, in the Hellenistic uh, Greek idea is that there was a celebration of what they called name day. And so many Greeks, they are named after saints of Catholicism. I can't even say that word today. Um, but today they're still named um, after these Catholic saints, right? And so every day, every single day in that Greek culture, they're still celebrating these names. There's 2,800 names that they celebrate. Which means that every day of the year is a celebration of several Greek names at the same time. And this got me thinking about us and, and what we do as a church, right? Is that every Sunday is the Lord's Day. And every Sunday on the Lord's Day, many people who are gathered, they're called by one name. And they gather to celebrate the meaning of that name, Jesus. We celebrate, celebrate Jesus, the risen Savior, and the Lord of our lives as we celebrate what it means to be called by His name. When we celebrate what it means to be called by His name, we come to the Lord's table, don't we? We celebrate what it means to be called by His name when we come to the Lord's table together. As a mission, this, this city had a mission to celebrate the Hellenistic lifestyle, and they were very, very successful. See, it is said uh, in history that um, Rome conquered Greece militarily, but that Greece conquered Rome culturally. And we have evidence of this, don't we? we? The evidence is this, that as a result, the Greek language flourished, such that the New Testament was written in Greek and not in the language of the Romans, Latin. Right? Because Greek had become the language of the common man. So this this city, Philadelphia, was the epicenter for the, the launching of the Hellenistic way of life. So already it's a mission base, right? Even though it had a worldly kind of uh, aim, this was a base for mission. This was a base that was sent uh, to be meant to be sent out and spread. So as we see in our passage, um, the, the church in Philadelphia was apparently quite small. Uh, this was not the affluent church. This was not the trendy church with large numbers. This was a church that had suffered the effects of several earthquakes, and they were vulnerable to mul multiple and more earthquakes. And this caused the church then to shrink in size. I kept thinking about this. This is a church that is barely hanging on. This is a church that is constantly in a perpetual uh, rebuilding phase. The church would be built. The would be built up. Earthquake would come. The numbers would decrease, the church would decrease, they would rebuild. This is the church that is just hanging on. They're barely hanging on. This church in perpetual rebuilding. Well, a few years later, after this, this letter was penned, we can see this, that persecution came from the Roman emperor Trajan, and it was on the increase. The, the whole Roman world would be tested. And uh, they would be tested after this edict of Me uh, Milan was 
proclaimed. For the next 200 years, Rome would test all of its citizens, not just Christians, because they wanted to find out where do their loyalties lie. So let us jump into verse 7 and just right to the beginning. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, he who is true. So part one of, a, of the two-part revelation of who Jesus Christ is to the church in Philadelphia is this, that he is holy and he is true. And as we saw before, the time is at hand and the master will return. And when he returns, he will return to gather his holy and true church. Holy and true is a, is a, is a theme that you want to hang on to as we look at this passage. It's not necessarily the thriving community of those who call themselves Christians, but he is coming for those who through obedient faith are those he calls holy and true. The statement, he who is holy, is a paraphrase. It's a development of what he says in one five about himself. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. Witness is tied both to true and to faithful as it describes Christ. So witness by implication is tied to all those who are the true church, those who are called faithful at Christ's return. So we've looked at almost every church, and one of the, the condemnations or commendations are about faithful witness, aren't they? Almost every church, there's this talk of faithful witness. Those who are witnessing to Christ outside of the building and those who are doctrinally sound inside the building. Right? This is a faithful witness. So faithful witness seems to implicate, uh, uh, indicate to us that that is who God calls faithful and true. Holy and true is those who are faithful to the witness of Jesus Christ. And this will be developed again next week when we look at the church in Laodicea. In 3.14, Jesus describes himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness. This revelation of Christ and the implication of the true church is going to be contrasted in our passage today in verse 9 that those who say they are Jews and are not. So those that say that they are faithful and true and there are those who are, they are not, right? Those say that they are, but they are not. Uh, and this is Jesus' decision. This is Jesus opening uh, who belongs and who does not belong. This is the open door or the closed door depending on where Christ finds them being faithful. And the cry of the church at Philadelphia is kind of echoed in chapter 6, uh, verses 9 and 10. I saw underneath the altar of the souls those who had been killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they maintained. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging the blood on those who live on the earth? The cry of the church is that during trial and struggle with little strength, they cry out, If we be true then why are the false oppressors not being judged yet for their harshness toward us? Why do they continue to succeed? Why do those who stray from sound doctrine seemingly tend to succeed? Why are those who are not faithful to the witness of Jesus Christ seemingly succeeding? This is the cry of the church. And Jesus is revealing to the church of Philadelphia, I am the one true God. He's calling himself holy. See, in the Old Testament, a declaration of the Holy One is almost exclusively referring to Yahweh. The Holy One is Yahweh. And Jesus here is saying, I, He, who is holy, 
who is true. He's declaring to them something beyond just being the faithful witness. Something beyond being the obedient servant. He's saying, I am. I am the I am. I am God. So he's declaring to them that he is the Holy One. In the Gospel of Mark chapter 1 and Luke 4, we see a man overtaken by a demonic spirit. Right? And this the spirit calling Jesus the Holy One of God. Calling him the I Am. And Philadelphia's partner in kingdom and in tribulation and perseverance writes this confession of Peter, that Jesus is the Holy One of God, the I Am, the One who has true life and determines who are of Him and who are not. In John chapter 6, verses 63 through 69, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh provides no benefit. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that would not believe and who would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me except it be granted to him by the Father. As a result of this, many disciples left and they would no longer walk with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to leave also? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have already believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And in part two of this description, so first we see that he is the Holy One. He is the one who is true. He is the one who has the key of David. See, what we see in this saying that he is the one who has the key of David, he is the one who in this passage says that who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one will open. This is the one who has the key to the kingdom. This is the one who determines who walks in the door and who uh, finds that door closed. He is the one who judges who is true and who is faithful. See, when we think about this, the, the kingdom of God is not run according to the ways and the whims of man, is it? It is not according to man's innovation that the kingdom advances, but it is according to God's sovereign will. The second part of this revelation of Christ is to say that the true and faithful, the Holy One of God, He is that which determines who is true. The Jews in Philadelphia, they declared that Jesus was a false messiah. And that those who followed Jesus were outside the covenant of God's people. Followers of Christ in that day, in that city, were locked out of the synagogue. They could not go in to worship. The leaders of the synagogue closed the door of fellowship to those who were called Christian. And here, Jesus says, I have the key of David. This is a development of, of Revelation 1.18, as you remember from that study. I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is the one who determines the true, who inherit the kingdom of God, and those who are the false, who will come under the judgment of the wrath of God. When Jesus is linked to David throughout the New Testament, it is in connection to his messianic identification. So when he says here, I have the key of David, they've been told that Jesus was a false Messiah. Jesus, the, you, if you follow him, you cannot come in and enter into fellowship. You cannot enter into worship, into the synagogue. You are not the real deal. But Jesus here says, I am the one who has the key of David. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. I am Jesus. I am the Savior. 
right? He is the one who determines that. Well, for the sake of time, I'm going to uh, point us uh, to just one of the 13 references I had listed uh, for you as to this pointing out that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, in Luke 1.32, he says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. This is what Jesus is revealing to him, that this is who he is. He reveals to the church at Philadelphia, I am the true Messiah. I am the Davidic king. I have the key as Messiah. I have the key to life. I not only have the key to death and Hades, as he said in 1.18, right? I am the key to life. I have the key to life and the key to death. I have the key to the kingdom that you can only walk through this door in me. He who was the king of David would bring the Jewish mind to this thought in Isaiah chapter 22. If you can, and you have your Bible with you, you can uh, uh, turn there with me to Isaiah chapter 22. I want to read uh, verses 20 through 25. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hil- Hil- Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. I will drive him like a pig in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So they hang on him all the glory of his father's house, offspring, and issue all the least of vessels from bowls to all the jars. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the pig driven in a firm place will give way, and it will break off and fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Jesus is like the firm peg. He is the Messiah. He is the one. Jesus is the only entrance to the kingdom of God. He opens what no one can shut and opens what, what, uh, and closes that which no one can open. No one comes to the Father except through me, as Jesus says. He is the one who opens. He is the one who shuts. In John chapter 10, Verses 2 through 9. But the one who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep listen to his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he puts all of his sheep outside, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. However, stranger, however, a stranger, they simply will not follow, but they will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus told them uh, this figure of speech, but they did not understand what these things, uh, which he was saying to them meant. So Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All those who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And in verse 14 of of chapter 10 in John, it says, I am the shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. This is what Jesus is declaring here. I know my own and my own know me. When he says that I have the key of David, I'm the one who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one will open. Verse 8, I know. Now we've seen that in every passage, right, of, of the, uh, of the churches. I know. There's this idea of knowledge. But what does Jesus know? I know. I know everything about you. So what he's telling the church. I know everything. I know all about you. I am intimately acquainted with you. 
I know your situation. In Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6, it says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I get up. You understand my thought from far away. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, you know it all together. You have encircled me behind and in front and placed your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot comprehend it. I know your deeds. I know everything about you. I pay attention to you. I am the good shepherd who knows my flock. He knows the church in Philadelphia and he values them. There's an implication for us, for those who are given the office of pastor, elder, or shepherd. And the implication of this is that shepherds smell like sheep. Shepherds smell like sheep. They are acquainted with the church. They are intimately acquainted. They care. They watch. And this is Jesus, the the great shepherd, the one who I'm intimately acquainted with all of your situation, church, he tells them in Philadelphia. I smell like you because I'm with you. I'm part of you. I'm always in and around you. And then we who are connected to Christ, right? Doesn't it tell us that, that we have the fragrance, the aroma of Christ because we're so connected to him. He says, I care for you. And for all of us, we should pay attention to this, to spend our time being acquainted with. All the things that we are acquainted with, you know, the things that we spend our time with, those are really the things that we value, aren't they? What do we value? We value that which we spend time with. We value those whom we spend time with. Those who we are intimately acquainted with. So Jesus values this faithful Philadelphian church and he knows their work of faith and he knows the obstacles that they are up against. He cares for them faithfully. He knows their current struggles because you have a little power. He knows their future faithfulness. He knows their past faithfulness. He says, he says here, he says, because you have little strength, little power. And you have kept my word and have not denied my name. He knows their failures, their struggles. He knows their successes because he's acquainted with them. He loves them. He knows them and he watches over them. I know your current struggles and I know that you remain faithful. I know of your past deeds of faith in trial because you've been tested and it is proved that you have the the preservative of faith. See, faith is what preserves these, the, the, this church. It is faith that preserves them, that is like a, an, a, a salt additive to meat, right? That, that it preserves it. Faith is, is, is like that, that preservative for them. You've not lost your saltiness. You see, doesn't conflict reveal character? Conflict reveals who you really are deep down. Thomas Akempis writes in The Imitation of Christ, It is good for us to have trials and troubles at times, for they often remind us that we are on probation and ought not to hope in any worldly thing. It is good for us sometimes to suffer contradiction, to be misjudged by men, even though we do uh, well and we mean well. These things help us... uh, 
to humble us and to shield us from vain glory. Which all outward appearance, men give us no credit, when they do not think well of us, then we are more inclined to seek God who sees our hearts. Therefore, a man ought to root himself so firmly in God that he will not need the consolations of men. When a man of goodwill is often afflicted and tempted and tormented by evil thoughts, he clearly realizes that his greatest need is God, without whom he can do no good. Saddened by his miseries and sufferings, he laments and he prays. He wearies of living longer and wishes for death that he might be dissolved and be with Christ. Then he understands fully that the perfect security and complete peace cannot be found on earth, but it is found only in Christ. Another quote from Thomas Akempis that I love. Times of adversity do not make a person what they are, but they reveal what sort they are. Right? Times of adversity don't make us what we are. Times of adversity reveal who we are. And this is what he's saying to this church. You've been tested. You've been through the trial and, and you're, and you're, it's coming f- further. There'll be more. But you've been tested and you've hung on and you have no, you have no strength, but you've kept faithful. You have been faithful. This is what has preserved you in these, uh, troubled times. And he says, for them, I have placed before you an open door. You have not denied my name and I placed before you an open door. This is an assurance of success. Right? If he, as, as they continue in faithful witness, he says, this small, struggling church will be successful in their witness outside of the church. The door is open. I have placed before you an open door. And in the past, you've walked through the open doors of faith. But I've placed before you an open door. There's assured success for you as a church because you've remained faithful. Kept me thinking of Matthew 25 in verses 21 and 23. Both it says the same thing as he's responding to uh, the, the parable of, of those who have been given some talents and what did they do with them. And he says, you were faithful with a few things and I will put you in charge of many things. Enter the joy of your master. This is what he's telling this church at Philadelphia. You've been faithful. Your faithfulness has preserved you. Your faithfulness will continue to preserve you. And I have an open door for you to walk in. And church, you will continue to be successful if you just keep it simple. If you just continue to be faithful to me, faithful to the word of God, and faithful to me, I will continue, you will continue in success. Now we get to verse 9 as he's talking to uh, them about the lies that they have been told from the synagogue. Uh, and he calls them the synagogue of Satan. Behold, I will uh, cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come down, uh, come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Oh, what a great, uh, a great encouraging passage. He says to the church of Philadelphia, Jesus says, I have loved you. And it is evidenced by your faithfulness, even in the harshest environments. If you are loved by Christ, do you want, do you want to know whether or not you are really, really, truly loved by Christ and that you are in him? Measure your faithfulness to him. As you are faithful to him, it is confirmation that you are loved by him. It confirms that, 
right? As you're faithful to him, it confirms that, oh, I am loved by him. This is the evidence of his love for me. This is evidence. You continued to witness to me through many dangers, toils, trials, and snares. The ones that deny that I am the Messiah, they're the ones that will be proved to be liars. It is proved that the true Jew is the one who lives by faith. Jesus says, those of the synagogue who say they are Jews, they are not. He's not saying that they are not ethnically Israelites. Okay, I want us to pay attention to this. This is an important part of this passage. He's not saying to them that these who are of the synagogue of Satan, they say they are Jews and they are not. He's not saying that they are not ethnically Israelites. He's not denying their lineage and their link to Abraham. He is saying their claim, though, to be the covenant people of God is false. And here's why. Because Christ is the mediator of a greater covenant. And the covenant of grace is evident in faithful testimony to Jesus Christ as Messiah and Lord. And they deny that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is the Lord. They deny that. Which proves that they are not Jews. That's what he's saying here, right? They are not Jews because of what? Uh, I think because of what Romans 2, 28 and 29 says. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that of in the outward in the flesh, but he uh, is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcised is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is, from peop- is not from people, but from God. And further in Galatians 3, 29, it says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. Heirs according to the promise. Right? So he's talking about faithfulness and faith in Christ and who he is, is what makes one a Jew. These who deny him are not Jews. They might be ethnically linked to Israelite heritage, but the true Jew is the one who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm looking around the room, and I, 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 I actually heard this last night at, at dinner. I, uh, someone in the room, it might have been my wife, said, but I'm not a Jew. And I immediately I thought of this passage. Yes, you are. Indeed, you are. We may be in a room full of Jews. I hope we are. I hope we're in a room full of Jews who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ the holy and the true. That's what I hope we are. So, he who is holy and he who is true calls the faithful witness in Philadelphia. He says, you are the true Jews. You are the holy and true people of God. Not by ethnicity, but by faith and by faithfulness. You are the true people of God. That's what he's declaring here. These are not the true people of God. They are not part of the covenant of God. They have come to the door and found it closed. Because the only way to enter into that door is you must come by faith. And you must by come, come by faith in the truth that Jesus Christ is both the Savior and He is the Lord. That He is Yahweh. He is the I Am. You must come to Him in that way. And those who come in that way are the people of God. They are the true covenant people of God. Verse 10 and 11, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. 
So in the immediate sense, right, Philadelphia will, will soon be tested uh, by the Romans. There's, in just a few years, about, it starts in about 80, 98 or so, and it lasts about 200 years, they start, they start to get tested in an increasing measure to find out what sort they are. This is what Rome does, and it's sorting out these people. And so intensified per- persecution is imminent. So because that, that's the immediate sense, and because you've been preserved in faithfulness up to this point, be of good cheer, church, is what he's telling them. Faithfulness is the preservative of eternal life. In the testing that is about to come upon you, this is the preservative. This is what will preserve you through the middle of what is about to come, is faithfulness. Faithfulness will preserve you. What does it preserve you for? It preserves you for eternal life. The crown of eternal life cannot be taken from you. Does that not encourage you, brothers and sisters, that the crown of eternal life cannot be taken from you? Because I want us to think about this. And I, and I thought about this on my way in here this morning. This is extra. This is extra this morning. I kept thinking about this idea that there's a difference between confession of faith and a possession of faith. There's a huge difference. Possession of faith is the preservative. A confession, a mere confession without possession, it gets you kind of nothing, doesn't it? And here when he's talking about faithfulness, he's talking about those who possess it. They possess it. And in a sense, they are possessed by it, in that they are possessed by it in Christ. Christ has possessed them. He has grabbed them. They are his. They belong to him. And they have, uh, they have this faith that belongs to them. It's theirs. It's more than a confession. It's, it belongs to you. It's part of you. It's who you are. That's what he's declaring here in this sense. And he says, this testing is coming upon you, and, and you ought to think about the, 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 the testing that, that the Lord Jesus uh, went under himself. In Hebrews 12, 3, it says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and you will not lose heart. See, somebody who possesses faith, more than just a confession, knows this, that I don't need to lose heart. I don't need to grow weary in the times of trouble because I am preserved by faith. And in the beginning, we saw in chapter 1 that John is telling them that he is a partner with them in kingdom currently, a partner with them in trouble currently, and a partner with them in the preservation that comes in Christ Jesus, the perseverance that is in Christ. So they have possessed Christ, and Christ has a hold of them. And so there's there's confidence that when the trial comes, I will be preserved through it, right? Because he has me and I have him. So this is a faith that has been given to you, brothers and sisters. This is a thing. You can't lose it. You cannot lose it. There's no way to lose it. You know why? Because it wasn't yours in the first place. It was given to you by love as a gift of his free grace. What an amazing truth. 
What an amazing truth to live by, right? That there's this, this, there's this faithfulness that I can't, I can't lose because God gave it to me as a possession, as something for me to own. And I might try to drop it off and I might act in unfaithful ways. And when I do, it is the Lord Jesus who loves me, who continues to pick me up and remind me of the faith that he has deposited into me, right? This is not for you, brother and sister. Pick up. Go on. Move. Hey, you, you're the one who I have given faith. Do you trust me? Yes, Lord, I trust you, right? How many times have we fallen down and think, oh, the Lord must be done with me? How many times have we failed? And in our failures go, oh, the Lord must be done with me. And then he reminds us, there's this little pinprick in our heart that reminds us, no, you are loved by him. And then we receive that faith again and walk in it, right? Consider Christ and how the Father preserved him through faithful endurance. Our text uh, reads, I will also keep you from the hour of trial. I want us to get this idea and understand this, that keeping us from the hour of trial does not mean remove. It does not mean remove. I will keep you from this hour of trial does not mean that I will remove you from the trial. Keep is this idea and in the Greek, it, it translates like this. Christ will clutch onto you in the trial. He will have you in his clutches. You will cling to him by faith. You will be in his hand during the hour of testing. And then I want us to notice this, that faithfulness will prove that we are loved by him. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and I will make them know that I loved you in verse 9. I will make them know that I loved you. You see, in Acts 14.22, it tells us that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. This is not a removal. Right? When he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial, he means I will keep you in the hour of trial. I will clutch and hang on to you in the midst of trial. Because it is through these tribulations that you enter, that you must. Acts 14.22 says you must enter the kingdom of God. You will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. Faithful witness, you see, is the preservative of eternal life during many tribulations. Hold fast your faithful witness. Christ will preserve your crown. He is the one who holds on to you as a faithful witness. And then we see that there is great reward for overcoming. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I'll write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out from heaven, heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The evidence that the Christian is loved by Christ is faithful witness. A faithful witness testifies to the truth of Jesus Christ even when it's unpopular, even when it's personally inconvenient. A faithful witness of Jesus Christ is the one who lives according to God's plan and does not try to improve it and does not try to innovate God's plan through the strategies of human cunning. The church, you see, is not Burger King. You can't have it your way. You don't get to have it your way. The simple way is this. Read the scripture and obey what it says. That is the simple faithful witness, isn't it? Read the scripture and do what it says. 
Obey what it says. Made me think of this. There seems, <laughs> there, there seems a, a way that it seems right to a man, but in the end it brings death. And Jesus here is also declaring this, that when he says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. This idea is that behavior matters. Behavior matters. Those who overcome the world will understand this and they will be preserved through faith and, and, and their crown will be held for them and they will receive their reward at Christ's coming. And the reward is that you will be a pillar in the temple of my God. When you think of a pillar, a pillar is an unmovable force, isn't it, in the building. It is the unmovable, stabilizing force. What stabilizes us in the kingdom of God? Faithfulness. This pillar of strength and faithfulness is, is about obedience to what God's word says we do. So behavior does seem to matter. And this public idea, this idea of public witness is that those who confess the mystery of faith, those who confess it as faithful witnesses. What is, what is the faithful witness? I think of 1 Timothy chapter 3. He who has revealed, who was revealed in the flesh, he who was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on the world, taken up in glory. This is really a summary of the gospel. And godliness is attached to this. Those who conduct themselves in the household of God according to his design. He calls them the pillar. The pillar, those who conduct themselves in the house of God according to his design, which is the true church of the living God. He says, these faithful witnesses are a pillar. And when he talks about that in the context of the church, the pillar in the church is a buttress of the truth. They, it is a reinforcement of what is true. So he's telling them, you are true. You are true. I am the one who's opened the door to you. You're true. Your faith in me, your faithfulness in me, your obedience to the word of God, your obedience to be a public witness for me, this indicates to me that one, you are loved, and one, that, that the door is open, that I have opened the door of faith to you. You are the true church. So encouraged by this passage this week because of this, 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 idea that here we are in this small church in rural Oregon, right? And there's always a temptation, right, to do innovative things, to bring a whole bunch of people into a building. And somehow if this place were packed with 300 people, would we feel like we were successful? And it's a reminder of kind of my early days in the ministry. I kept thinking about all of these things and how to do things differently and maybe inventive and maybe be creative and maybe draw these, all these, uh, people way in by using the ways that these other churches are doing it and these innovations that they are doing it, doing it in. And I remember walking and praying and walking through town and, this little small voice as the Lord speaks to my heart, you know, in this little quiet voice said to me, I've not called you to be famous. I've called you to be faithful. I've called you to be faithful, right? At church, we're successful if we're faithful. We're successful. So if there's four of you here, 24 of you here, 44 of you here, I just long that 22 
144, 144, 395, however many people are in here, that they are all faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ, that they are the true. That's all I care, that you're true, that you're the true people of God. And he tells them here that, that, that they will be the pillar of God. They will be the pillar in the temple of God. Uh, and they, and you will not go out from it anymore. And he's going to write on them his name, the name of my God. They'll be marked out by God, marked as his. The faithful witness preserved in Christ is marked of God. And then, the dwelling place of God. What is the dwelling place of God as he's talk, talking about Jerusalem? Is he talking about a people for a place? He's talking about, I have made a people by faith, and they are my place. They are my dwelling place. In the true and faithful witness is my dwelling place. I'm making you a dwelling place. I'm making you a people. You know, sometimes we think about how the kingdom is built and we think that, that the kingdom is about uh, us, he, him preparing to, to build a place for his people to go. He's building a people. He's building a people to take them to a place, but he's not building a place for a people to come to them. He's building a people that are set apart for a place. And that place is with him, with intimate connection to him forever. And then finally, as he ends here, right? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The true church hears. The true church hears the one who is true. They hear him. I got great encouragement from uh, another pastor this week as we were discussing all kinds of things and about uh, uh, mainly this idea, how are things going? And, and I'm like, well, there's successes here, there's shortcomings here, there's uh, this, and I feel like sometimes I'm just spinning my wheels and all of these things. And he said... Preach the word of God because the people of God love it. I'm like, okay. The people who are not of him don't love it. Don't worry about that. Preach the word of God because the people of God love the word of God. They love the truth of God. They love to hear it. So just preach it. Just preach the word of God and trust that God is the one who's holding it all together for you. God is the one who's opening doors. God is the one who's closing doors. You just have to walk through the open door that he gave you. And the open door he gave you is preach the word and, and obey it. Preach the word and obey it. And that's the call for all of us, isn't it? Well, as we uh, close, if you would just reflect upon uh, God's word this morning, reflect on uh, a couple of thoughts. Is there a promise in today's message that you are to keep? Is there some sort of uh, conviction, a, a change that the Lord wants you to make? Think about those things. And then think about finally this. What can I glean from this passage this morning that tomorrow morning when I wake up, I need to hit the ground running in that truth? Right? Let's think about those things as we take a moment of silence and then Joe will lead us in the Lord's table.